like to you to turn this morning in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 for our discussion from the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, and let's begin reading in verse 10. We're just going to go through verse 13 this morning. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, this wrestling that we call the Christian life, the battle that you face, and and this is true, if you're in Christ, you know the battle against sin. If you don't know Jesus, you also know a battle against sin. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is to say, the primary source of it is not people. But it is against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or the location of our primary opponent is not on planet Earth. Okay? Physical walking around, although we often think that to be the case. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. And then verse 14 begins with this directive. Stand firm then. Okay? Four times the word stand is used in these, uh, from 10 to 14, in these four verses, five verses. Okay, an an imperative, a command to take your stand. One word that jumps out as you begin this passage of Scripture is the word finally, which basically means this. Paul has broken the book of Ephesians into three parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are truth and doctrine about God, about the Spirit, and about Christ, and the work that they are doing on our behalf. Chapter 4 and verse 1 begins with this directive. If you flip back a few pages in your Bible, Ephesians 4 and verse 1 says, Walk worthy of the gospel. Okay, so here's a doctrinal, solid foundation about God that you can build your life upon. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul starts to talk about the practical outworking of your faith in Christ. A lot of what Doug had covered over the last couple weeks emerges from that section of the book of Colossians and also a similar pattern in the book of Ephesians doctrine about God, the duty of devoted Christians. When you get to chapter 6, verse 10, you sense another shift, okay, in the word finally, or this is the last kind of statement that I want to make to you, and it is a statement that has as its topic spiritual warfare, okay, and here's the assumption. If you take the directives of chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 9, which deals with the issues of speech, of your emotional life, about sexual purity, about marriage, about parenting, about work, all to be done by the Spirit. If you take seriously the directives that Paul has given, particularly the ones that Doug talked about last Sunday morning, and you say, by the grace of God, that's the life I'm going to live. Okay, I am going to make a commitment to walk worthy, Ephesians 4, 1, of the gospel of Christ. That is to say, I am going to live like a born-again, regenerated, changed person. When you make that declaration, okay, I want you to understand this, and I think this is Paul's heart. 
That is a declaration of war. Spiritually. When you say, I am making a firm commitment to advance the cause of Christ through a godly life by walking worthy in all the ways that Paul has talked about, you will find yourself facing a persistent and consistent opposition. Okay? And this text, this finally part, this as for the rest part, reflects back on 4.1 through 6.9 and sends, I do not believe, as much a warning as an encouragement for this need to stand. And one of the, there's, there's two verbs that are used. One is the verb just simply stand. Hold your ground. Hold your position. But then it goes into an imperative. And the idea is stand against, resist, fight against the opposition, and advance the cause of righteousness. And when you begin to do that, when you move simply from a passive standing, holding your position, to an active advance of the gospel of truth through a holy life, you're going to need help. Okay, does that make sense? That, uh, look at what he's called you to do. I read those texts, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. I don't say, okay, no problem. I say, I don't have capacity to do that. God, give me the desire, give me the ability. When he says, keep your heart pure in Ephesians 5, keep yourself from immorality. We have this sense that, God, I need the help of your spirit to maintain a morally pure life. When he talks about speaking the truth in love and encouraging people with your words, we tend to use words in wrong ways. And we, in, in every area that we walk through, from chapter 4 through 6, 9, we find this desire to... Here's what we're thinking. It'd be great if I could do those things. But I struggle when I attempt to do those things. Paul anticipates that struggle, and also, I think, implied in anticipating the struggle, is a sense of discouragement that comes to us as believers as we try and try and try and find ourselves often in failure. It is possible that we... We'll look at the directions that he gives. Look at the command to stand. But what we are facing is a loss of, if you will, confidence that we can actually do it. You ever had that experience in your Christian life? I want to be different in these areas in my life, but I lack confidence that true change can come. All right, if that is what you're feeling, I can tell you this this morning. You are a normal Christian. Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is anticipating... The spiritual battle that the believers, his friends in Ephesus, are going to face. And he calls them to stand against the opposition, against the enemy. Spiritual warfare simply is this. It means to stand against our opponent, the devil. Now, I could give you long, theologically complicated explanations of what spiritual warfare is. But what it simply is, is this. Stand against firmly and resist that which opposes the advance of God's kingdom. Okay, that is spiritual warfare. Most Christians will admit consciously that the Christian life is a battlefield. I think one of the passages that in, in, in Ephesians 3 is fascinating to me. If you look back there real quick, I want you to notice what Paul says. 3.13. What, what is he picking up on? He says, don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Which gives me a hint that starts to emerge in a number of places as I read through the rest of the epistle that Paul was sensing a, 
failing of confidence and faith on the part of the believers in Ephesus. And so he pointedly says to them, please, in, in, in prison, in this suffering, don't be discouraged. What I'm going through, don't let it discourage you. I want you to know that this is, the, is, is part of normal Christian living. Okay, and so he writes them, just very, the transparency of it to me is powerful. Don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, stand firm in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 5, walk in the Spirit. Okay, these directives, they, they, I think, are ways in which Paul is indicating that he senses a failing of confidence on the part of the church in Ephesus, and his desire through this passage of Scripture, as for the rest, or finally, is to encourage this failing faith of the believers there. Ken Hughes says this about our understanding of spiritual warfare. He says, to it, spiritual warfare and the battle that we live with, we often give conscious voice. Okay, we give a conscious voice to belief in spiritual warfare. So if you went to the average Christian and said, do you believe that Satan opposes you in your daily life? All biblical believers are going to say, well, yes. We obviously face a persistent opponent in our Christian experience. That's part of the Christian life. So we give this conscious voice to belief, but actually live in unconscious belief. Okay, we give conscious voice, but unconscious disbelief. We don't prepare ourselves on a daily basis because we don't really think that on any given day we're going to face opposition from the evil one. So we can consciously say, yes, I believe it. But unconsciously, we are professing an unbelief because we don't prepare as if the day that we live is going to be, in fact, a battle. Does that make sense, how that happens for us? It's a truth that we know about, but it's not a truth that regularly affects us. I think this is a truth that should regularly affect us. Why? Because there is a crisis of confidence that often comes over believers because Christian living in our world is not easy. It, in fact, is difficult. And as this shakening or a weakening of the faith of the believers in Ephesus occurs, Paul writes to them, to tell them how to respond to the crisis and confidence that he is sensing that they're experiencing. And I think he starts sensing that back in chapter 3 and verse 13. Don't be discouraged. Okay? As you stand. Okay? Take courage. Stand firm. And so these are directives as to how we should respond to a crisis of confidence that often comes to us as God followers. If it was an easy life, we wouldn't need these encouragements. The implication, I think, very clearly is that Christian living is not always easy. It's a joyful path to travel, but it is not always an easy path. It is an incredibly rewarding path, but it does not always appear to be that way. I believe the aim of this text is to strengthen, to encourage, and to bolster and support the weak faith of the believers in Ephesus. And may that happen for us today. May we hear Paul's call to valor and a firm resolve to stand. Okay, I think that is the clear thrust of this text. You say to me, Pastor Tim, what is the theme of this text? Stand firm in your faith. Don't waver from right to left. Stay the course. The question that comes to mind as we say that is this. How do we do that? How do we strengthen and encourage our faith? How do we, at the end of the day, stand our ground and stand against and advance 
the cause of the Savior Jesus. Three very simple thoughts this morning. Number one is this. We need to daily make a decision to stand. Okay? Verse 10, down through 14, four times the directive goes forth. Stand firm then. And, and here's the caveat I would put on this. Decide early and often to actively resist the assaults of the evil one. Okay? So if I am going to engage in this battle in a way that is going to be effective, I need to make a decision on a regular basis to, to decide early and often to actively resist the opposition that God tells me is coming. I think of an Old Testament character, Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, he and some friends are taken into exile from Israel into a land of Babylon where the perks will be very attractive. Where the call of the world of the world will be abundantly strong. In Daniel chapter 1, I believe it's verse 9, here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not participate in the king's food. Now, the reason for that non-participation was because a lot of it was tied to pagan idolatry and Daniel wanted nothing to do with the influences of the world in Babylon. And so he decided early, actively, and often that he would resist the temptations that were present there. Same thing is true when you read the story of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says Moses chose not to entangle himself with the pleasure and privileges of Egypt so that he could do the will of God for his life. He chose early and actively in a, in a strong and committed way to resist the temptations that were present there. So my challenge to you is this. Do not fall back. Do not surrender to the temptations that you're facing today. Hold your position in the power of God. Now, here's the thought that comes. If what Paul is saying is you need to decide and commit to stand on a regular basis. Is he indicating that there is some doubt as to the success of Christians' lives? Okay? Is he indicating that there is a doubt as to how successful we as believers are going to be? And I think the answer to that question is very, very important. I don't think Paul is saying what he is saying because he doubts the outcome. But he wants us to know that we should stand because victory in Jesus is in fact already assured. But that victory is not automatic. Okay? Meaning, I have a part to play in my Christian life. I have decisions that I need to make early and often on a regular basis. To resist the opponent that I face. So here's the question that I would ask you this morning. Are you committed to rigorous standing, to strong convictions and strong Christian living in your life? Okay, are you regularly deciding to commit yourself to stand for the cause of the Savior? Ephesians 5, I think, gives us one of these calls to rigorous living and standing. Ephesians 5 verse 3, he says this. If you look back one page, he says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality 
or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but instead thanksgiving. Okay, what is Paul giving here? And he does it a number of times in this text. He's giving a rigorous call. Okay, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. These are improper for God's holy people. We need to make decisions regularly to resist such patterns and tendencies. So the first way that we fight against a fading of confidence is this. I am going to make a decision on a regular basis to stand to do the will of God. Now, when you make that decision, what's going to happen? Okay, when you make the decision to stand, you will find that you face a formidable opponent. Okay, you're going to find that when you start to make those kinds of choices, I don't care how old you are, because we often think, well, the young people are the ones that face the peer pressure and the serious opposition, and once they get past those years, they'll be fine. All right, ask the average adult if the pressure lets up. Okay, when you start raising children, guess what you need to do? You need to make a choice to stand on a regular basis. Why? It takes courage to raise kids in this generation. You need courage. It doesn't lighten up. And here's what would be awesome. What would be awesome is if we as parents would leave for our children a legacy of deep, active decision to stand for the glory of God. And when we do that, to admit to them the second truth that emerges out of this text, and that is this. When I seek to stand for God, I am going to be pressed to admit, number two, my need for God's help in standing. Okay, so I decided, you know what? I am going to see a difference in my life. I am going to take seriously Paul's directive to stand. Okay, once you make that decision, you will also have to follow it up with another decision. That God, as I go out of here today, I am going to live for you. I am going to, like Daniel, early and often, purpose in my heart not to see my life defiled. As you do that, the second thought will have to emerge. The second truth, the second way that you maintain your confidence is you're going to have to admit your need for God's help. And this emerges out of verse 11 and 12. Here's what Paul says. He says, put on the full armor of God. And that will come to next week. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. And here's what we face. Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And then he gives a list of various specifications and descriptions of the opponent that we face. We need to admit our daily help for our daily need for God's help because we have a substantial opponent who is described in verse 11. If the Savior wrestled with him in serious ways, I think every Christian should acknowledge that when I seek to be like Jesus... I'm going to find that I'm facing a battle in which there will be serious opposition. I must admit my need for God's help because I face a substantial opponent. Now, as I say that, I say this, this question. Should we be concerned about this substantial opponent? I think the answer is this, yes. Not afraid, but aware of, respectful, and concerned. Concerned from this perspective, because I realize I cannot face this opposition on my own. I will need the help of God, and I must plead for that help on a regular basis. I think what emerges from this text very clearly is this. The Apostle Paul had a firm belief in a personal prince of evil. 
you cannot read this text and not realize that Paul understood that on a regular basis, he was engaging with an opponent who wanted to take him out. And what I find is this. Half-hearted, apathetic Christians find very little resistance to that kind of a life because it makes no difference to the evil one if you live an apathetic, half-hearted Christian life. But if you make a decision to stand and to advance, not passively, but to stand against, to resist the influences of evil, you are going to find yourself in the midst of a battle that is going to cause you to say, God, I today need your help. In verses 12 and 13, just a quick summary of this. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Why does Paul use so many words to describe the nature of the evil one? Okay, he could have just said he's incredibly powerful or he's incredibly evil, he's incredibly scheming. He gives this list of words that describes Satan. And, it, and, and there's a temptation, I think, that many of us have. There's a temptation to want to take all of those words and lay them out on charts and talk about how all the hierarchy in the evil realm and all go on and on and on and on. And I think when we do that, we miss the point. I think the point very simply taken is this. The opposition that we face is formidable and it is pervasive. It is highly structured and effective. Satan is seriously determined to oppose what God wants to do in your life. And when you strive for righteousness, you will sense a striving back on his part against what God is seeking to do in your life. Paul, I think, wants us to maintain a lively, vivid awareness of the evil one. Okay, so my question to you this morning is this. Do you seek to maintain a lively awareness of the opposition that you face? Paul says stand. Why? Because you face an active, strategic opponent. Okay, I need to not see him behind every circumstance and issue and individual and thing physical in my life. But I do need to be aware that he is committed to actively opposing whatever glorifies Christ. And I mean that in every realm in your life. And we must resist him. You say, if you said to me, Pastor Tim, where do you think we need to resist Satan? I would go back to chapter 4, 1 through 6, 9, and I would delineate the specific areas in which Paul is concerned that Satan is working. He wants to come against you in your workplace. He wants to come against you in your family. He wants to come against you in your relationship with your children. He wants to come against you in regard to resting in the power of the Spirit of God. He wants to come against you in the, in the context of the work of your tongues. What, is, what does James say? James says, your tongue, the fire of it is, set on, it is set on fire by hell itself. Okay, this, there's this constant awareness that Satan wants to take advantage and make encroachments into our life to destroy that in our lives that glorifies God. So my challenge to you this morning is this. See him as disciplined and organized. Maintain a vivid awareness that, of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that he is the God of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, earlier in this book, he is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. 
He has, and, and here's what I think what is so important. He has say in certain realms. He does not, and this is I think the key, he does not have ultimate say. Okay, he is the prince and ruler of this world in the realm in which we live. But he is not the ultimate authority. Hence, respect, but not fear. Okay, we serve a God who is quite capable of dealing with him when we trust in the Savior and admit our need for his help on a daily basis in our lives. I am struck by what it says in verse 13 in light of admitting our need. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. That is, God, I need your help and your covering and your protection. So that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground. Folks, is this not what we want? Don't you want when the day of evil comes to find yourself facing a temptation from the evil one and experiencing victory over it so that you can go to one of your friends, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, to your mate, to your child and say, God helped me today. And as I rested in him, he answered a prayer. He gave me ability to give an answer that I would have never given in that circumstance. He helped me stand against this person who was seeking to drag me into immoral thinking. He gave me the capacity and the courage to stand. See, Here's what Paul anticipates. There is an evil day coming. Ultimate conflict with the evil one, which I believe is 1 Thessalonians 4, the book of Revelation. But there are days of evil in our lives when the opposition is intensified. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus experienced it. Samuel experienced it. David experienced it. You could go on and on with people who experienced days of evil when they desperately needed the support of God. And what is so beautiful, I just, can, I just read for you this one passage. I typed this out on my notes. Joshua 1. Joshua is the young disciple of Moses. He has been mentored by Moses in leading this incredibly difficult group of people. Okay, I'm glad I was not called to lead that group of people. I'm thankful I was called to help in leading under God this group of people. He was called to guide people that were incredibly stubborn and difficult. And here's the sense I get. God says, okay, Joshua, Moses is gone. You're the man. And Joshua's thinking, I signed up to be an assistant, (laughs) okay? I did not sign up to be the boss. And all of a sudden, Moses is taken out of the way. And you can just imagine what goes through the heart of Joshua. God anticipates the struggle. And folks, this is what I want you to see. God anticipates the struggle and makes provision for the struggle. That's why it's important that we depend on him. God is not allowing us to go into things that we can't handle with Him. But He will let you go into things that you can't handle on your own so that in the end, the glory goes to Him. See, His aim is to demonstrate His utter authority over the evil one. And He let Him around. Here's the question we ask. Why did God let Satan around? So that God could demonstrate His glory over the evil one in your life so that you would see how great your God is. He just didn't eliminate all opposition. He's demonstrating that he has authority over all of it. The starting demonstration, the profound demonstration in the New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that resurrection, he disarmed the powers of the evil one. Yes, Satan still works, but understand, his effect is limited. But it cannot be conquered in human strength. Again, I think this is so important for us to understand this. It cannot be handled in our flesh. Joshua knows this, and he hears this encounter with God. Here's what God says to him. God says, Joshua, no one will be able to stand up against you. 
all the days of your life. Folks, listen. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will come against but will not prevail. You know what Jesus maintained? A lively awareness of Satan's effects. And he sought to pass it on to the disciples. And here it is being passed on to Joshua. He says, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Listen to this next promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God says to Joshua. Does that sound familiar? Is that not exactly what Jesus said to the disciples as he dispatched them into the world? What does he say? He says to them, look guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in that authority I say to you, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Teach them to do everything I have told you to do and show them how. As I was with Moses, Joshua, I will be with you. Therefore, and this is the command, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Does that sound familiar? Sounds exactly what what, what Paul's saying in Ephesians 6. Stand firm, resist. Be careful to obey all the law that my, that my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from the, to the right or to the left. Stand so that you may be successful wherever you go. And then verse 9. Have I not commanded you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. That is, don't fear the evil. Respect the opposition, but don't fear it. Do not be discouraged. I think that is exactly the heart of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6. Don't experience a lack of confidence. Build your confidence in God. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord will be with you wherever you go. Now, here's what I know. I know God is not saying to Joshua, Joshua, there will be no opposition. It's not what he's saying to him. You will never, Jesus said to the disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's part of Christian living. It's part of the God-glorifying purpose of demonstrating His authority over the evil one through the lives of committed believers who at times will experience a fading, a lack of confidence. But when they choose to stand, they will all of a sudden realize, God, I admit to you, I need your help to stand today. And then this very simple thought emerges from this text. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means. Your main problem in life is not a person. Your main problem in life is not someone who's hurt you. Your main problem is the person who is behind that. Okay? Husband, your main problem in your life is not your wife. So stop blaming her. Okay? Your main problem in life is not your coworker. It's not your friend at school. Your main problem is the evil one who is seeking to gain a foothold in your life through them. And I think that's what it means in every case in the New Testament when it says, don't do this, lest Satan get a foothold. Don't do this, lest Satan get a foothold. And all of a sudden we're thinking, what? My problem is my mate. My problem is my kids. My problem is my coworker. My problem is my neighbor. My problem is the government. We go on and on. What is Paul saying? Your major struggle is not against flesh and blood. And the word that he uses here, your struggle is, it's, It's a description of personal, fierce, hand-to-hand, rolling-around conflict. 
so the attack of the evil one in your life is what? It is profoundly personal. And when you engage in it, here's what you're going to find. God, I need your help. So that when the evil day, that more intense experience comes, you can stand. Here's the cool thing. If in your standing you were depending on God, who gets the glory? He does. You know, God doesn't want us to be successful on our own. Because our success is owing to His power and His presence in our lives. So may God help us to realize that our greatest problem is not the people around us. It's the one who often finds a foothold in our lives and in their lives and affects us deeply. Can I ask you this question in light of this thought? Admit your need for God's help. Do you, Christian friend, do you have a habit, a pattern, a discernible pattern of meeting with God on a daily basis? Because if you don't, you are unprepared and unaware of the nature of the opponent that you face. But see, Paul's aim was, I don't think it's to scare them. I think it's to give them a reality check so that they will go back and say, you know what, God, I want to have the joy of depending on and resting in you on a daily basis in my life in a habitual way, in a life-changing way. The last thought that I think emerges, and I'll just real quick give you this thought. The challenge for us is this. Rest in our great God. And I flip back up to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the armor that is sourced in God. Okay, do you see the emphasis that Paul has here? Find yourself resting in your great God. Because the God of this world who rules in a realm, chapter 3, is powerful and formidable. But the God who rules over him and over all things is more exceedingly and omnipotently powerful. You see, here's what it is. Satan is powerful and God is powerful. Satan has limited power. God has unlimited resources. See, and that should so deeply encourage our hearts implied in Paul's directive is a promise. If you stand in, strong in the Lord, and in His mighty power, you can stand. This thing that you can't do on your own, that you have to admit your need for help with, you can do. If you rest in the power of God. And then the question that obviously comes up is, why should I rest in God? One translation of this text says this, God is strong, and He wants you strong. That, that phrase hit me with a preciousness. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying God is strong and He wants you strong. And the only way that you will be strong is if you rest in Him. But if you're not motivated to rest in God, guess what? You're not, if you don't have a reason in your heart to realize, I need to go to God, it's not going to happen. The reason you should rest in God is, is twofold. Number one, that He is loving. He is so loving. And it is because He is so incredibly able. Here's what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm trying to keep you in context. 
He says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom his whole family and now in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of the glorious riches that he has, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may be at home in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the saints to grasp. That is power, a capacity to comprehend. What, Paul? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that defies explanation so that you would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Folks, that's what we need to stand. And we will depend on Him when, he know he, when we know He loves us like that. And we will depend on Him and we will rest in Him when we know that He is able to do amazing things. How able is God? Ephesians 2.1 says that while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, He made us alive. He caused you to hear truth that you didn't want to hear. He opened your heart to the gospel. He allowed you to see your sinfulness. That's how powerful He is. He made you alive together with Christ. He raised you spiritually from the dead. But He also did something else. Verse 19 and 21 of Ephesians 1. Paul talks about His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of His mighty strength that He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Where? Far above all, listen to what this says, rule and authority and power and dominion. Does that not sound exactly like what He's saying in chapter 6? He placed Him after He raised Him Far above. So you can draw all the charts you want about the hierarchical structure of the demonic realm and Satan's realm. His kingdom. But here's what you must know. No matter how massive and impressive that structure is concerning the evil one's power, Christ was seated by the power of God after raising him from the dead far above all of that. Here's what's fascinating to me. You know what our greatest fear is as human beings? It's death. It's death. You know what God's saying? He's saying, I overcame your spiritual death. And I overcame the physical death of my son that none of you believed I could overcome. And then the sense it comes back to, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? It's why the disciples loved Jesus so much. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was curtains. They trusted and believed him. Thought he could do amazing things. If somebody has that kind of authority and that kind of power, should we not trust Him? I thought of this in light of Colossians 2.15. A text that very pointedly talks about the authority of God being demonstrated over Satan and what it basically says is, in raising Christ from the dead, He served Him notice that His time is limited and that God's kingdom will endure forever and ever. Now, folks, that's a God to trust. A God who we should rest in because He loves us and because He is able. You see, as parents, we have this struggle. We say to our kids, I love you and I'll do anything for you. But we wrestle. We wrestle with a fickleness in our humanity that causes our love to be 
off and on, usually on, but sometimes off, unfortunately. But the greater struggle that we have is this. I love you and I will protect you. But as human beings, what do we constantly realize? We constantly realize that our capacity to love our kids, for a dad to say, I want to protect you. I want to meet your needs. We are constantly hit with circumstances that remind us of our inability. And we're reminded, I have to give that to God and I have to give that to God. And remember when we took Rebecca to the hospital when she was operated on, when she was 14 years old, took her to New York University Hospital. As a dad, you're saying, I love you and I will be there for you and I will protect you. And then God in his sovereignty puts you in a situation where you have to watch her roll through doors into an opera room. And guess what you can do? You know what? What I realized was this. My love for my daughters is immense. My capacity to be there for them in all circumstances is seriously weak and limited. I was reminded of that about a week and a half ago. We had been up to visit my daughter on Friday, drove home on a Saturday. And she called me Saturday night because she had a problem with her car. Why did she call me? To be honest, I know why. But it's like, Dad, I can't stop my car. Implied in the phone call. What are you going to do about that? My response is, you got married. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Call your father-in-law. He knows more about cars than I do. Now, in that moment, here's what I felt. Here's what I felt. I felt a desire to do something. But I had no ability to help her. None. That will never happen with God. His promise is, I love you and I will be with you. And the power that exerted, that I exerted to raise Christ from the dead is available for you. What are you saying? Don't be afraid. Joshua, don't be, yeah, I know this is a hard group for you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Friends, I say this to you this morning. Would you make a commitment? Would you decide actively to stand firm? And when you do, to say, God, I so am going to need your help. And he comes along and says, you can rest in me because I love you. And I am able. So folks, there's nothing God can't conquer. It's why when he raised Christ from the dead, he seated him far above all things. So that I can say, honestly, this morning, okay, and I, I'm saying it from here right now, okay? I consciously am saying this unconsciously. I disbelieve it at a certain level. I know God can handle every circumstance in my life. Anything you're facing today, I promise you, he is able. That's my conscious confession. My unconscious confession is what? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The wrestling with jobs, finding work provision for your family, saying, God, I know you love me and I know you're able. Here. I want to know it here. So that I do get up tomorrow morning a little bit earlier to cultivate a habit of depending on you so that I can actively choose to stand the ground that you have given to me. Folks, here's the bottom line. When... All of us together stand. We deeply encourage each other. And when you bring testimonies of God's working and grace into various environments of Christian fellowship in your life, you are helping your brothers and sisters to stand. So go get a testimony of the power and love of God that never fails. Go stand 
And when you stand in His power, He will grant you success for His glory. That's what I mean, Sandy. Get a testimony. Okay? Go attempt something that you've been avoiding. Go stand for something that you should have been standing for in your workplace with your friends in college and high school. Go take a stand and watch what God can do. Because your main problem is not people. Your problem is bigger than you. It's not flesh and blood, so don't even think about it. Engaging in this in your strength, it is not enough. Mindful of the, the scene in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, when Gandalf stops Frodo and Sam from, they want to pull at their swords and take on this demonic horde that's streaming down the channel towards them. And he looks at him and says, that human strength, that won't work here. Folks, may God help us to realize every morning that my sheer determination to get out of bed and go live my life for the glory of God will not be enough. It is the cause of most failure because we fail to take into account the prince of evil, Grim. We tremble not for him. His wrath we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One, folks, listen, one little word shall fail him. That word is Christ. Will you trust him? And if you don't have assurance of heaven, will you trust him? to be the one who paid the price for your sin and wants to be your Savior this morning? Would you trust Him because He loves you and He is able to cancel all of your sin? I don't care what you've done wrong, He is able. Would you trust Him? Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. This passage of Scripture is utterly and incredibly powerful. It, it stirs in us emotions of caution when we see what is arrayed against us, but it stirs in us deep degrees of confidence because we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And Lord, this morning as your church, we simply want to confess if we have not been spending time with you and resting in you, that we need to cultivate a habit of doing that. If we have in any way not maintained a lively understanding of the opposition we face, may you Give to us a clear understanding so that we will stand in your mighty power. And when it's all said and done, may we still be standing firm. So that the glory that you deserve is given to you. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness.